This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Tafidis. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 1, Chapter 11. I leave that flowery path for eye of childhood, where I sported many a day, warbling and sauntering carelessly along, where every face was innocent and gay, each veil romantic, tuneful every tongue, sweet, wild, and artless, all. The Minstrel At an early hour, the carriage, which was to take Emily and Madame Chéron to Toulouse, appeared at the door of the chateau, and Madame was already in the breakfast room when her niece entered it. The repast was silent and melancholy on the part of Emily, and Madame Chéron, whose vanity was piqued on observing her dejection, reproved her in a manner that did not contribute to remove it. It was with much reluctance that Emily's request to take with her the dog, which had been a favourite of her father, was granted. Her aunt, impatient to be gone, ordered the carriage to draw up, and while she passed to the hall door, Emily gave another look into the library, and another farewell glance over the garden, and then followed. Old Theresa stood at the door to take leave of a young lady. God forever keep you, mademoiselle, said she, while Emily gave her hand in silence, and could answer only with the pressure of her hand and a forced smile. At the gate which led out of the grounds, several of her father's pensioners were assembled to bid her farewell, to whom she would have spoken if her aunt would have suffered the driver to stop, and having distributed to them almost all the money she had about her, she sunk back in the carriage, yielding to the melancholy of her heart. Soon after, she caught, between the steep banks of the road, another view of the chateau, peeping from among the high trees, and surrounded by green slopes and tufted groves, the Garonne winding its way beneath the shades, sometimes lost among the vineyards, and then rising in greater majesty in the distant pastures. The towering precipices of the Pyrenees that rose to the south gave Emily a thousand interesting recollections of her late journey, and these objects of a former enthusiastic admiration now excited only sorrow and regret. Having gazed on the chateau and its lovely scenery, till the banks again closed upon them, her mind became too much occupied by mournful reflections to permit her to attend to the conversation which Madame Chéron had begun on some trivial topic, so that they soon travelled in profound silence. Valancourt, meanwhile, was returned to Estuvière, his heart occupied with the image of Emily, sometimes indulging in reveries of future happiness, but more frequently shrinking with dread at the opposition he might encounter from her family. He was the youngest son of an ancient family of Gascony, and having lost his parents at an early period of his life, the care of his education and of his small portion had devolved to his brother, the Count de Duvarney, his senior by nearly twenty years, 
Valancourt had been educated in all the accomplishments of his age, and had an ardour of spirit, and a certain grandeur of mind, that gave him particular excellence in the exercises then thought heroic. His little fortune had been diminished by the necessary expenses of his education. But Monsieur Lavalancourt, the elder, seemed to think that his genius and accomplishments would amply supply the deficiency of his inheritance. They offered flattering hopes of promotion in the military profession, in those times almost the only one in which a gentleman could engage without incurring a stain in his name. And Lavalancourt was, of course, enrolled in the army. The general genius of his mind was but little understood by his brother. That ardour, for whatever is great and good in the moral world, as well as in the natural one, displayed itself in his infant years. And the strong indignation which he felt and expressed at a criminal or a mean action sometimes drew upon him the displeasure of his tutor, who reprobated it under the general term of violence, of temper, and who, when haranguing of the virtues of mildness and moderation, seemed to forget the gentleness and compassion which always appeared in his pupil towards objects of his morsehood. He had now obtained leave of absence from his regiment when he made the excursion into the Pyrenees, which was the means of introducing him to Saint-Aubert. And as this permission was nearly expired, he was more anxious to declare himself to Emily's family, from whom he reasonably apprehended oppositions in his fortune, though, with a moderate addition from hers, it would be insufficient to support him, would not satisfy the views either of vanity or ambition. Valancourt was not without the latter, but he saw golden visions of promotion in the army, and believed that with Emily he could, in the meantime, be delighted to live within the limits of his humble income. His thoughts were now occupied in considering the means of making himself known to her family, to whom, however, he had yet no address, for he was entirely ignorant of Emily's precipitate departure from La Vallée, of whom he hoped to obtain it. Meanwhile, the travellers pursued the journey, Emily making frequent efforts to appear cheerful, and too often relapsing into silence and dejection. Madame Chiron, attributing her melancholy solely to the circumstance of her being removed to a distance from her lover, and believing that the sorrow which her niece still expressed for the loss of Saint-Aubert proceeded partly from an affectation of sensibility, endeavoured to make it appear ridiculous to her that such deep regret should continue to be felt so long after the period usually allowed for grief. At length these unpleasant lectures were interrupted by the arrival of the travellers at Toulouse, and Emily, who had not been there for many years, and had only a very faint recollection of it, was surprised at the ostentatious style exhibited in her aunt's house and furniture. The more so, perhaps, because it was so totally different from the modest elegance to which she had been accustomed. She followed Madame Chiron through a large hall, where several servants in rich libraries appeared to a kind of saloon fitted up with more show than taste. And her own, complaining of fatigue, ordered supper immediately. I am glad to find myself in my own house again, said she, throwing herself on a large settee, and to have my own people about me. I detest travelling. Though, indeed, I ought to like it, for what I see abroad always makes me delighted to return to my own chateau. What makes you so silent, child? What is it that disturbs you now? Emily suppressed a starting tear, and tried to smile away the expression of an oppressed heart. She was thinking of her home, and felt too sensibly the arrogance and ostentatious vanity of Madame Chiron's conversation. Can it be my father's sister? 
said she to herself, and then the conviction that she was so, warming her heart with something like kindness towards her, she felt anxious to soften the harsh impression her mind had received of her own character, and to show willingness to oblige her. The effort did not entirely fail. She listened with apparent cheerfulness, while Madame Chiron, expatiating on the splendor of her house, told of the numerous parties she entertained, and what she should expect of Emily, whose diffidence assumed the air of a reserve, which her aunt, believing it to be that of pride and ignorance united, now took occasion to reprehend. She knew nothing of the conduct of a mind that fears to trust its own powers, which, possessing a nice judgment, and inclining to believe that every other person perceives still more critically, fears to commit itself to censure and seek shelter in the obscurity of silence. Emily had frequently blushed at the fearless manners which she had seen admired, and the brilliant nothings which she had heard applauded. Yet this applause, so far from encouraging her to imitate the conduct that had won it, rather made her shrink into the reserve that would protect her from such absurdity. Madame Chiron looked on Agnès' diffidence with a feeling very near to contempt, and endeavoured to overcome it by reproof rather than to encourage it by gentleness. The entrance of supper somewhat interrupted the complacent discourse of Madame Chiron and the painful considerations which it had forced upon Emily, when the repast, which was rendered ostentatious by the attendance of a great number of servants, and by a profusion of plate, was over. Madame Chiron retired to her chamber, and a female servant came to show Emily to hers. Having passed up a large staircase and through several galleries, they came to a flight of back stairs, which led into a short passage in a remote part of the chateau, and there the servant opened the door of a small chamber, which he said was Mademoiselle Emily's, once more alone, indulged the tears she had long tried to restrain. Those who know from experience how much the heart becomes attached even to inanimate objects to which it has been long accustomed, how unwillingly it resigns them, how with the sensation of an old friend it meets them, after temporary absence, we understand the affordance of Emily's feelings, and of Emily shut out from the only home she had known from her infancy, and thrown upon a scene and among persons, disagreeable for more qualities than a novelty. Her father's favorite dog, now in the chamber, that seemed to acquire the character and importance of a friend, and that the animal flown over her where she wept and licked her hands. Ah, poor Manchon, said she, I have nobody now to love me but you, and she wept the more. After some time, her thoughts returning to her father's injunctions, she remembered how often he had blamed her for indulging useless sorrow, how often he had pointed out to her the necessity of fortitude and patience, assuring her that the faculties of the mind strengthened by exertion till they finally unnerve affliction and triumph over it. These recollections dried her tears, gradually soothed her spirits, and inspired her with a sweet emulation of practicing precepts, which her father had so frequently inculcated. End of Volume 1, Chapter 11